0: Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Welcome
1: to the ODI, everybody. Um, Really great to see you all here on a Friday afternoon. Um, So I'm going to introduce our CEO today, uh, Jenny Tennyson, who's going to be talking about whether we should have faith in data. Um, For comments and and, uh, questions during the talk, if you want to tweet us at hashtag ODI Fridays, that'd be great. Um, So yeah, introduce you to Jenny.
2: Thank you, Richard. Uh, so the origin of this talk is that um, some of the team were asking me why I kept going on about our decisions being informed by data rather than driven by data. Um, so this talk is my explanation to show them and train them about why, why that is, um, but also hopefully of interest to you guys too. We make decisions all the time every day, all the time. I was thinking about the kinds of decisions that I make. I think about um, how to get across London to my next meeting. Um, I had decisions that affect the people in my lives, like where to send my kids to school, some of which are quite constrained decisions, of course. Um, Decisions that affect other people in the team, like how much to pay them. And decisions that affect, well, our general environment, like, so who to vote for, decisions that are combined with other people's decisions and then lead on to decisions that are then made by government about that then bounce back on me. So decisions made all of the time. Um, And we humans are really bad at those, at decision making. There are lots of ways in which we're bad at decision making. Uh, If you look at um, Daniel Kahneman's famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, about different kinds of decision making processes and the kinds of biases that we have, anchoring, um, where, you know, if we're given a particular number, then we will fixate on that number and provide other numbers that are similar to it. Um, availability, where any kind of uh, scenario or anecdote that is very immediately obvious to us, we will use in order to make decisions. Um, things like being ultra-optimistic but really scared of losing things, so holding on to stuff as if we've got it. Um, or the sunk cost fallacy, where we think just because we've invested a lot of effort in something we need to continue it to its end all of these things make us bad decision makers as humans and there are other things as well Um, this is a really interesting study about um, uh, uh, judges who are making decisions about whether people should uh, be let out on parole and um it, what it looks at is energy levels through the day. And it turns out that judges are more likely to make favourable decisions after they've had a break and really unlikely to make a favourable decision if it's just before lunch. So our, our bodies and the amount of energy that we have in them alters the way in which we make decisions as well. Humans are bad at decision making. And data comes to the rescue, right? Right. Data can help us to make those decisions. Um, We often say here at ODI that data helps us to navigate to a decision, um, that we use data in order to help us to get to those decisions. We talk about data as being like roads that we navigate down in order to get to a better decision and then act on the world. So when I need to travel around London, then of course I use the data that is given to me by CityMapper in order to do it. It helps me to know where there are uh, (coughs) blockages. It helps me to know where there are links between different services. It means that I can do that smoothly. When I need to look at where I send my kids to school, I go and have a look at the statistics about that school so that I can see that I'm going to be sending them to one that's going to boost their science and maths and who cares about art, right? Um, uh, how much to pay my employees? Well, benchmarking is a good way of working that out. Um, so I can get data about that. If I pay for a service, I can get data about uh, to benchmark what they should be receiving. And of course, I use data in order to help me know which way to vote. Famous data like that on the side of a bus. So data great. Data can definitely help us to make better decisions. Um, and that means that we are starting to, as a society, uh, drive the decisions that we make using data. Some examples. Um, what adverts we see when we go online is driven by data that is collected about us as we navigate through the web. This is a really scary picture of all of the organisations that are involved in working out what kind of of adverts to to display to you, um, including those that tag you as you navigate through different websites to try and work out what what you might be interested in, what kind of person you are. Um, We're developing tools like Watson Health or DeepMind tools that are helping us to make decisions off the back of lots of data collected about uh, patients in order to work out how we should be treating people when they're ill. we use data that's collected immediately, but also data about road networks, data about where there is um, uh, um, high traffic, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to drive autonomous cars. Right? And of course, that kind of data is going to be even more important as we get more automated transport. But these data-based decisions, these data-driven decisions are not necessarily good decisions. Let's have a look at some places where that's going wrong. Um, This is a famous example from a a year or two ago uh, where um, Google Photos labeled black people as gorillas, tagged them as gorillas so that when you searched for gorillas, you would get black people back. That's a decision that's made by an automated system that is bad. Um, This is from just a couple of days ago. Uh, so, um, there's a new uh, there's a new system being put into place by Ministry of Justice where um, if you have one of these, uh, if you have a traffic incident, and, and, you know you're speeding or you park in the wrong place, they're looking at systems so that you can plead guilty and pay the fine just online, very easy. Which isn't necessarily bad, except that. Um, unlike the subtitle there what could possibly go wrong with this madcap scheme Um, it isn't necessarily bad it cuts out cost and we can see why we want to nudge people into not taking up court time but on the other hand if people are pleading guilty because it's the easiest thing to do rather than because it's actually right then that is a bias that we might want to think about take care of this was a scandal, a Centrelink scandal in Australia um, that happened kind of over Christmas time, which was where um, uh, two sets of data were being linked up together behind the scenes in ways that didn't quite work, that meant that many, many people <laughs> in Australia were getting issued debt notices for debt that they didn't actually owe, and, of course, that led to lots of anxiety for them and problems. And even though there was an accountability mechanism, i.e. they could object to it, it still meant that they had the stress of being um, issued with one of these debt notices that was uh, that were incorrect because the linking algorithm was wrong uh, or had errors within it. How long we spend in prison. This is a, an article from ProPublica where they dug into software that was used in order to work out, in order to help judges to work out what sentence um, criminals should be given based on what it had seen of their, of their past and also general patterns in the population. And what the study showed was that that it was systematically biased against black people, that they would get longer sentences than white people using this automated system. Um, So there are places where data-driven decisions can lead us to bad outcomes. Now, I'm a developer by training and background. And as any developer knows, all code has bugs in it. No matter what you do, um, all code will have bugs in it. And the same is true with data. All data has flaws in it of different kinds. Um, examples of where that happens. Uh, how we collect data, what data we collect, can lead to biases. So we ha- may have biased data collection. We might miss out certain parts of the population because they're hard to reach, for example. Um, even automated uh, sensors will have errors in them just because of mechanically, there will be some, some um, uh, kind of little um, variability within the sensors that means that you can have tiny pieces of error, even in the most automated systems. We get people, who, when we are collecting data, who lie or, or who lend their Oyster card to somebody else. So we get different data about what their journeys would be. Um, Data that we rely on that gets out of date because it's only <coughs> uploaded every month, rather than or only recalculated every um, every year, and also fragmentary data. I don't just mean that only bits of data get collected, but also that in many in the decisions that get made. Um, systems have to only focus on particular bits of data. That's how it works. You can't capture the entirety of the context and environment in which, um, in which things happen. All of the political subtext, all of the environmental subtext, you can't capture all of that as data. So those, those things don't get put into our algorithms, necessarily data that we collect is fragmentary, it doesn't cover everything. Um, but all those faults, it doesn't mean I'm not, and I'm not arguing that we shouldn't use data. As I said, data is extremely valuable for helping us to make decisions. It just means that we don't we shouldn't be blind about those faults and we should be putting in place things. Um, processes and governance structures and other kinds of practices that mean that we can um, detect when those happen and do something about it. So it doesn't mean we shouldn't use data, just not blindly. And what I wanted to go into for the rest of the talk was just to explore some different ways in which we should be having some best practices about where we are using data to, to make decisions. And these best practices, I think, are particularly important where we're using automated systems or we're using data to make decisions that affect people. Um, because the decisions that affect people are, are those that uh, are most important to us as a society, right? So particularly for decisions that affect people, what should we do? I have five things. First of all, and this is a very <coughs> obvious one from somebody who works at the Open Data Institute, is be open to scrutiny. So um, documenting and being open about what data is being used, how it is being collected, what algorithms are being created, etc, cetera, etc cetera, means that those can be looked at, they can be examined, they can be <coughs> judged, they can, they can be corrected. But if you don't have that openness, then there is no way of of correcting for or or knowing when things may be going wrong because of systematic um, data collection biases, for example. So that's really easy to say. Um, the, 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 uh, The sad truth and reality is, however, that just being open doesn't mean that people look Um, If if we really wanted to rely on openness as a way of making sure that bad things don't happen in our decision-making, we would fail. You need to have some kind of proactive monitoring of um, what is being used to make decisions that affect people. And also, we have the the complexity of the fact that some of the algorithms that are used to make decisions about us... um, are not understandable. They're ones that are generated through machine learning. It's hard to pick them apart. It's hard to understand the logic behind them because they have been generated, simply generated by code. And so even if you could open open up the kind of black box that is a, a neural network, you wouldn't necessarily be able to understand exactly what is going on or why behind the scenes. So, openness is great, and it's very important, providing that context about how data is collected to help people know the scope to which they can use it to make decisions, being able to look at algorithms to see how they're put together is all very important, but it doesn't take us to where, where we really need to go. Second thing, allowing appeals and challenges. So, if we have systems that affect people that... Um, that, that, uh, that we have no opportunity to appeal or challenge against, then we have no visibility about where it might go wrong. And people who are affected because, for example, their data has been recorded incorrectly or is out of date, then they have, um, they have no way of appealing against that decision that has been made against them. So building in an appeals or challenge process when decisions are being made based on data, is extremely important. Again, though, that can only really work if people know that these are the particular pieces of data that have been used to make this decision, and this is how they have been put together. Otherwise, they don't know to to say, actually, you've got my age wrong here, and therefore my insurance premium has been calculated incorrectly. One thing I wanted to point to here was some work by uh, projects by IF where they have been exploring different design methods for displaying that kind of information. So this one is an example of a data access tracker where... um, when you are uh, engaging with the service, it will also tell you about what data has been collected and when it has been accessed and how it is being used. How we communicate that back to people so that they can can understand um, how their data has been used to make a decision about them and therefore appeal it, if necessary, is really important. And we need new design patterns to, to help us do that. So those are great. Um, having being open, having an opportunity to appeal but um, as I talked about with the with the um centrelink example uh it's still the case that a decision that is made about you can affect you, and even if you can appeal against it, the whole process you have to go through in order to make that appeal is extremely stressful, it takes time, it it has a negative impact upon you. So tailoring algorithms so that they are aware of, so that they're, they're, they're adjusted to take account of the impact of errors is really important. By the way, background picture is risk, because risk, impact, I don't know, anyway, (laughs) that's why. Um, um, So, an example, using that Centrelink example, um, if we have an algorithm that's deciding whether or not we um, should get a debt notice, then obviously, if we don't owe money, then we should not get a debt notice. If we do owe money, we should get a debt notice that 's the way a perfect algorithm would work and There are different kinds of errors that every algorithm will have along those lines because they because um, they can't uh, there 's always bugs right and data always has flaws, like I was saying um, but if we uh, the type two error, of the false negative error. So when I owe money but I don't get a debt notice, that has no real impact on me, except actually I get away with it, right? Um, it does have an impact on on government because it's not collecting all of the money that it should do, but the impact on me is not so is not so good. So that is not is not big. So. Um, that kind of error is less impactful and less worrying than the kind of error that we've been seen with the Centrelink example, which is type one error, a false positive when I don't owe money, but nevertheless, you give me a debt notice, right? So we sh- when, when we're creating algorithms, there will always be these, type, these two types of errors, but we can adjust algorithms so that they're more likely to give the kinds of outcomes, the types of errors, that are less likely to have a negative impact on us than the types of errors that are likely to give a a terrible (coughs) impact on us. And so that's my third kind of point, that we should be tailoring our algorithms so that they are biased towards not having a negative impact rather than, by, rather than being biased towards those impacts that, that could be less, less important. Fourth thing, enabling reflection and correction. So here I'm starting to get into the... Um, Maybe this is is more of a speculative thing that we could be looking at. Um, So we as humans are always biased, right? I I talked about how how we have biases in decision making. But one thing that we as humans do is that we reflect and try and correct our own behaviour. So we might come out with something um, uh, kind of on impulse, a decision on impulse, but... (laughs) Rein ourselves back. That's part of the. Um, that's part of having the second system of thinking. That that the slow level of thinking that Daniel Kahneman was talking about. What if we had those kinds of mechanisms in decision-making systems as well? Um, and there is some work towards this. To, to it is possible to take out some bias within. Um, even machine learning algorithms, if you know to look for it and if you know to take it out. so There's a whole series of papers by um, these people from Microsoft Research and Boston University where they are looking at um, the relationships between words, so um, in particular analogies. So man is to computer programmer as woman is to homemaker. Those are analogies between... Um, Uh, men and computer programmers and women and homemakers Um, if you take all of the uh, natural language um, that that are used typically in order to um, understand say for example CVs or or articles (coughs) etc etc they have built into them because of the way in which we use language these biases that will make a computer think that men are Men are more likely to be computer programmers and women are more likely to be homemakers. Um, That's because the language that we use reflects the world rather than the world we have rather than the world we want it to be. And we as a society try and push back against that. We as humans try and push back against that. But it's apparent in the corpus of um, text that is used to drive these kinds of algorithms. However, it is possible to, and these researchers are looking at how to. say well these are the kinds of biases that we do not want to have existing in our systems and therefore we will programmatically remove that as a source of bias so they take the the gender specificness of those analogies and they remove that that gender specificness from the way in which they encode the words hence giving us a system that has that that kind of bias actually removed from it rather than pre-existing. So take a look at that it's really really cool research it's very so it's possible for us to build even with machine learning algorithms that that do not display those kinds of biases if we know to look for them and if we specifically go out and do it so shouldn't we when we have algorithms that are being used in order to um, affect people's lives, shouldn't we be automatically also having algorithms which test whether those biases are happening, which flag them to us and which remind us to go back and and change the algorithm, change the way it it works in order to remove those biases? Um, The background here is from the uh, performance dashboards on on, um, GDS. So any service that is being provided by the government could automatically detect whether the decisions that are being made or the the use of the service is biased in some way and could report that back so that we know to adjust the algorithms themselves and even eventually get to the state where that was doing that automatically. And this is particularly the case and particularly important where we have shifting um, shifting societies and shifting norms and changing data over time, which will change the way in which the system works. So that was my fourth. And fifth, which again is really kind of um, thinking uh, a bit out there, I don't know whether this would work at all, but introducing diversity into decision making. Um, In places where we as a society have an environment that are making decisions that really affect people, as in courts, we have this this system of having a jury to make those decisions for us, right? We trust a group of people and a a diverse group of people. This is not a diverse group of people. This is from a jury from ages ago, right? So... um, but we trust a diverse set of people of our peers to make a decision on our behalf It is, it is true that we 've <coughs> seen that having diversity in decision making in general, even in, between humans, leads to better decisions. How could we use that as a way of introducing better decision making to where algorithms are involved um, and This kind of happens a bit in some places so um, in the automatic landing algorithms in in big uh, aeroplanes, they actually have three different computers that are all calculating the same thing um, as you're coming into land. And if two of them agree and one of them disagrees, then they ignore the one that disagrees and they take the one that that agrees, and that's because the, the sense, like I talked about with the sensors and things like that, then you can have these small mechanical interruptions which can mean that the information um, is, is not uh, accurate or the, the computation is not accurate. Um, and so having voting between the three systems gives you a more robust decision overall. So you could have multiple systems that, that were created perhaps based on slightly different data sets or under slightly different conditions and try and have a vote between them to get a bit of diversity in decision-making. Well, the other system that I was thinking about is, is, again, how do we make decisions in really important circumstances as humans? Well, one of the ways is through argument. We have some it, When we have a court case, we have a um, prosecutor and a defendant and lawyers arguing on their beha- behalf from one side and from the no- another side um, and it is that argumentation that helps us to get to a, a better decision, right, because they are able to weave a story backed up by facts um, that, that argues for a particular, uh, particular side and it's the one that is most persuasive that is the one that, that wins. But through, through it all, and I suppose what I'm really arguing for is that in certain circumstances where it's really important and where um, human lives are affected, we ought to be coming back to human judgment and take our responsibility as people seriously rather than um, just divesting that to machines. And that is because we possess qualities that machines can't possess and don't possess. We have a much better ability to understand the full context in which we are operating. And we have essential human empathy for for people. And I think that that's important in the decisions that we make. And that so to summarise, I think... Obviously, algorithms and data should be open to scrutiny. We should be supporting appeals and challenges, tailoring our algorithms so that it takes into account the impact of errors, not just whether there are errors or not, enable that reflection and correction to root out bias and introduce diversity. I think that that would be a really interesting um, avenue of exploration, introducing diversity into automated decision making, which is why I always argue that decisions should be informed by data, but not driven by data. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Jenny. That was really interesting. Um, so We've got some time now for questions. If you're listening or watching on the live stream, um, you can ask questions by tweeting us at ODIHQ and put in hashtag ODI Fridays into the tag. Um, so I've just got one question to get us going whilst people think of their own questions. Um, those kind of five principles, or, or doctrines, if you like, of how to make... De- uh, ideas. Ideas, um, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, dial it down from doctrines, yeah. right? <laughs> um, are there any exemplars that you know of in the world today that are that are kind of incorporating some of that already, if not all of them?
2: Okay. Um, oh, God, that's a difficult question. Why didn't you ask me that before <laughs> you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> yeah um so no uh, as, as in well no as, that's not quite true I think that the um I think that there's the foundations of some of it in for example the way in which we provide and talk about statistics where we provide a huge amount of context about how uh, how the data behind statistics are collected and collated and analyzed and that is a form of the openness that i was talking about right so having um so openness about uh, about that is 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 definitely there i think that there are um there are obviously places in which we have openness in the code and algorithms that are used so some of those get Get published, and so people can go and scrutinise them, supposedly at least. Um, so I think some of the openness things and some of the transparency things are st- are, are kind of there. Um, I think it's fairly well accepted that you should have some appeals process. So, for example, even in the Centrelink example, there, were, there is an appeals process that you can go through, but I uh, haven't seen stuff that is adjusted to the, to the level of impact that it's going to have. I haven't seen some, any examples of that, and the others, apart from the kind of examples I pulled out, I haven't seen.
1: So lots of work to
2: do? Yeah, I think so. Are
1: there any questions? So I,
2: but I might just not have seen it, so... My, my bias in, in my, <laughs> <laughs> my interests, yeah.
1: Thanks, Jenny. Um any, any questions from the room? That's one of there. So if you could just speak into the microphone so that we can hear you at home. Thank
0: you. Um, you were talking about um, adjusting algorithms to reduce the impact of errors. Um, what do you do about where there is a disagreement about who is being negatively impacted? So in your, your example, it was it was kind of clear, but if in, in sport, for example, mm-hmm. in drug testing, mm-hmm. um, they try to reduce false positives because they say it, it destroys careers, but that's, it's, it has a knock-on effect on the false negatives, so more, yes. yeah. more people get through. so who who decides on those thresholds, or is that a? Is that another governance? Gotcha.
2: So I, th- I think you know that there isn't, there aren't going to be hard and fast rules about any of uh, any of this, um, and uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, um, a lot, uh, a lot of people. So, for example, of Royal Statistical Society and we and other people argue that we need to have <laughs> a proper uh, data ethics board or group that can be referred to to make those kinds of decisions um, so um, th- whether that is uh, doing the kind of early on scrutiny around the uh, openness or or making early decisions about how to bias algorithms having that those kinds of groups involved just to to have somebody to knock it against if anything if not anything else I think it would be really important
1: on the other side of the room.
0: Thanks. Um, I wanted to pick up on the Centrelink example a bit, partly because I think it's even worse than you were (laughs) suggesting, and partly because I work at DWP, so there's a bit of, thank God it wasn't us this time, about it all. Um, You framed it as there's a decision which allows an appeal. And actually there's something about that framing which is itself problematic. So the machines made a decision... And it's your fault as the individual if it's wrong and you've got to do something to redress this wrong that has been done. So I wonder if we should start thinking much more less about decisions as a helpful concept. There's Mm. a proposition that this algorithm has generated Mm -hmm. is that you might owe us some money. And actually we should, in the nicest possible way and possibly ultimately in a rather nasty way, but... Let's start nice. Yeah. It's a conversation. Is yeah. this a yeah. is this a correct representation of reality or not, rather than I have decided you've got a problem if you don't like it. Yeah. And that relates then on second concern I had, which is your next point around tailoring al- algorithms. Um the kind of the balance between the false and false negative and false positive is actually a bit more tricky than that, because obviously being told I've got a debt that I don't really have and being made to pay yet is a bad thing. Actually not being told a debt now, which Mm -hmm. I'm blissfully unaware of, but somebody might come for me next year or the year Mm -hmm. after when it's mounted up and there's interest and Mm -hmm. maybe my circumstances are less able to make me pay it, is actually not a good thing either. So in the same way as the previous question, tuning the algorithm to reflect that range of biases is itself going to be a massively, massively difficult thing.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: So, and I think that both of those those points come back to, I, I really like your, your idea this is a proposition and it's the start of a conversation. I think that that's one of the things that I really fear in um, in data-based decision-making where we do not have the critical thinking to say, actually, I think you're wrong in this circumstance or where the design is set up To buy, to make you think that it is the truth, and you have you have no um, form of of uh, redress, or or you can't really object because it must be true, kind of thing. Um, That's one of the things that I, um, I, you know, we we see our behaviour as people where, where we um, tick the, to the agreement and the consent in the terms and conditions because it is easy to do and we want to get to where we want to go. Um, it, is, it is just the case that we are biased towards the easy path. And so um, that's one of the other reasons why I get concerned about talking about data-driven decisions rather than informed decisions because it takes the, the human's responsibility to challenge what has come out out of the equation. And I think we should have that, that um, responsibility to challenge it.
3: Uh, thanks very much for a really clear lecture. I work at a think tank called Future Advocacy and we're looking at the policies surrounding the opportunities and risk by you know, artificial intelligence yeah. and use of big yeah. data. Um, and I really like the five ideas that you put forward as a basis for you know, moving forward to construct policy. But there are two aspects which I'd value your opinion on. Mm-hmm. The first is... For example, you put that slide up with all the companies, that mass of companies that use our data for to target advertising. Yeah. How do we get the buy-in for the companies and this trade-off between use of our data for their own profits um, and, and what do they give us back? So, sort of, how do we get the company buy-in and also how to make the general public care about their data? We're very, as you said, the easy option is to take, the, you know, give away all my data. Yeah. Um, so, I wonder what your thoughts are on that.
2: Um, so on the on the second point, then um, where I currently am on that is that um, I think it's very difficult to make people care about something that seems very abstract, but people do care about it when the uh, when a decision is being made about them on the basis of that data. And so, so my feeling is that we should be trying, we should be looking more at the decision-making end. Of the uh, of the process than at the data collection end of the process, and that and that kind of reflects back to your your first point, which is about how do you get business buy-in? Well, um, businesses want to be able to collect data in order to make their their own informed decisions them, themselves. Um, and so battling with them about what they can and can't collect is probably is, is a difficult like, place to start with them, but on the other hand, talking to them about how they maintain the trust of consumers, um, how they uh, make a safe environment for their customers, those kinds of things, I think that they're much more motivated to to be involved in, and then it comes down to you know are the, like i say um look at the decision-making end and what the impact actually is on how that data is being used on the customer to to then build back to the business. So
1: one question for you and then maybe we'll ask some of the online questions.
3: And, um, thanks. Um, I was really interested in your suggestion that argument was a way to overcome some of the limitations of being data-driven and the, the idea, the kind of the adversarial model like we use in, yeah. in court or even... Theoretically, in Parliament, where we have the opposition holding the government to account, remember that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Vaguely. But it, but it seems that... Th- th- and then, you know, you did go on to say, talk about human judgment, and, and I was thinking that making an argument, that kind of marshalling evidence from a particular point of view has some very human characteristics. The story. The narrative, yeah. exactly, yeah. the narrative, but also the motivation, the, the kind of the, the mm-hmm. sense of a particular goal the sense of interest that you're mm. representing the ability to think yourself into the other side's mindset and go mm. if I were them what would I be asking me mm. so i felt that was part of you saying this is where we need the humans and the human judgment but am i wrong is that the kind of thing that you could be looking to build into algorithms so
2: i think that there are two ways in which you can two ways in which you can think of it part of it is uh, you, you can think of it as okay let's make the algorithm that's making the argument in, in one particular direction, but then specifically empower the person to be critically thinking about that to make the argument in the opposite direction, right? So the, the two the adversaries are the computer and the human. But I was actually thinking about it in terms of could we, could we create two different, um, uh, two different algorithms that would bi- be biased and argue for particular outcomes and then try and judge between those again like this was just an an idea looking at what is it that has worked where we have biases in our human decision making what are the ways that we have got around that are there same kinds of techniques that we could employ with artificial intelligences as well so yeah both of them Uh, yeah we've got a question from james on twitter who asks Does the difference between data, information and knowledge sometimes lead to misunderstanding? Um, So, uh, lead to misunderstanding? It's very difficult with a 140-character question. OK, I'm sure that the difference between data and information and knowledge sometimes leads to misunderstanding. Um, We think that... um, So i 'm going to interpret question in a particular way um, we can think of data as being kind of hard facts the the stuff that is on the ground and that is irrefutable, even though often it isn 't because of the we can think of it as being like that and that as we have systems that are layered on top of that, and interpretation that is layered on top of that, that becomes information, it becomes knowledge. And um, the further that you get away from the hard facts, the more bias and the more interpretation is layered on top of that. Um, so uh, if we think that what is being presented to us, which has actually come through those layers of interpretation, is still hard fact, then, we call it, then it causes problems. Um, so, uh, so for example, the whatever it was, three hundred and fifty million on the side of a bus. Um, that is something that has gone through a number of layers of interpretation in order to get there. Is no longer a hard fact and causes us problems because we get misled. That might have been the question. I don't know.
4: Okay. Uh, in regards to sentencing yep. and human judgment. Yeah. And fairness yeah <laughs> if you were to take the race and ethnicity out of the uh out of the equation do you think that would get a kind of a fairer you know fairer set fairer sentencing and if that is possible that's all uh how can we go back getting that
2: so um in the, in the particular example that I uh, talked about, the ProPublica one, where there was, it was using an uh, automated system to, to do that, um, they, they looked very definitely at people who had... Um, where the only difference, really, was about race and taking that out uh, of the equation... With, uh, sorry, and, and the, that was how they detected that there was a real bias there, right? Um, I think that there are there are those kinds of mechanisms, like I talked about, around the gender splits, about the the, the uh, if that where if you are aware of those biases, then you can build that those biases are easy to occur, then you can build in the algorithms to to stop them from happening. But you need to be monitoring it in order to make that um, to detect where that is occurring, and it's not. It's not obvious when you first create the algorithm off the back of the data that you have that you are building in those biases to the algorithm because um, you're not, for example, coding specifically on race, but you're coding a whole bunch of data points that are associated with race, and that is what generates the, the outcome that you get to. Does that answer your question, sort of? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes
4: yeah, sort of. Uh, so if you were to take just speaking to the right i'm point. sorry so if you were to take i mean another in instance if it was uh whether it was gender whether it was yeah. uh, ethnicity if you were to take one out you would and if you t- took it out across the board you would you would you in your opinion get fairness <coughs> um uh
2: would you get fairness um or could you get fairness? I say, so, well, fairness is such a relative concept. Is anything really fair? Um, That's <laughs> what we all want. We just want, you know,
4: yeah, we just want a society that is.
2: Fair. I think. I, so the way that I would think about it is that there are certain things that we have recognised in society are places where life isn't fair for us, right? There are certain places where we know that there are biases um, around gender, we know there are biases around race, we know there are biases around uh, our economic status, and so on and so forth. We pick those out and we choose which ones to target. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other places where there is built-in biases. And so it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily give you fairness. It just addresses that particular unfairness.
3: Yeah?
1: Okay. <laughs> Just one last question, because this chap popped his hand up. Before we start out um, hi, I've um,
5: I'm, I'm from uh, BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT, and I've recently started kind of looking, trying to get my head around uh, personal data as a as a big old topic. And I think one of the things that struck me quite early on is that there there does seem to be a massive disconnect between the um, you know the people who are collecting and um, dealing with people's data and the public. and that seems to be based on the public just feeling a complete lack of control when things come out like the um, recent transformation strategy um, you know the assumption seems to be that um, the public's on board with the the sharing of data Mm -hmm. and uh, I guess my question is how do we get to um, those kind of lofty expectations where data can be used kind of um, productively and you know which I would assume means giving the public some feeling of control, really.
2: Yeah, so uh, so I think that um, openness and transparency is at the heart of that. So I, I think that being, um, being more public about what is actually going on and what, why data is being shared and the benefits that that brings. Um, I think is at the heart of how we get the public on board with um, with that happening. I think that. Um, what tends to happen currently is that um, data gets shared behind the scenes, nobody knows about it, then it comes out with a big splash and it's a big horror story and that always drives down trust. Um, and we get into a state where we get worried about talking to the public about how we're using their data because we're worried about them re- um, responding in this very negative way, which leads us to hide it, which leads us to then have the big splashes, which diminishes trust even more, right? I think that we should be trying to get into a positive cycle where we are um, being much more transparent and open about how data is being used and for people's benefits. Um, That includes in general, but it also includes specifically, as in your data is being used right here, um, the sharing of data from these particular organizations has made this a really nice, smooth transaction for you right now, and your data has been shared by with these people, which has led to these breakthroughs in um, in medicine, etc right? I think sharing it making it very specific for, for individuals is also important um, so so openness and transparency if we can be, if we can be open about. Um, using how that data is being used the benefits that it brings and open about the struggles that we have about knowing where to draw those lines um, and have conversations about that and have open conversations about that I think that we can get into a better cycle where our use of data is more trusted um, where we can the the public is more informed and that that means that we can get the best out of data overall
1: So we've run out of time, but um, thank you very much for coming along. Thanks for all your questions, and thanks to Jenny for giving a really great talk. Um, Just a quick reminder: there's no lunchtime lecture next week because it's half term, but we'll be back um, the following week. Um, So hopefully see you then. Thanks very much. Thank
0: you. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institutes.